Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. So Peter and I have been talking a lot about this bullfighter that recently got killed during a bullfight in Spain. Yes, gored to death in the ring. Uh, his name was Victor Barrio. He was 29 years old, right, Lori? And it's been quite a while since Spain has had to deal with one of these deaths, but it happens once in a while. He was gored, and he died in the ring, even though they tried to resuscitate him on the way to the hospital. Uh, his lung was punctured, his aorta was severed, and he just died there. And remarkably, and probably one of the reasons everyone's talking about this, is this was broadcast live on television, and his young wife, Raquel Sands, 32, was in the crowd. In fact, there were a bunch of family friends in the crowd to watch him perish. And Peter and I asked ourselves, should we feel bad about what happened to this guy? And did he deserve what he got. So I posted an article of the story and a picture and asked my Facebook friends which of the following three statements is most representative of their views. One, bullfighting is a legitimate sport and I feel bad that a person was killed. Two, bullfighting is archaic and cruel and the bullfighter got what he deserved. Three, unsure how I feel about this. Well, I'll tell you, we got a lot of responses but the majority of people did vote number two. The guy got what he deserved. Yes, bullfighting's archaic and cruel, and the bullfighter got what he deserved. Some of the comments from people who voted number two are, it's a horribly sad and cruel activity, and it demonstrates the lowest part of humanity. Okay, I, I like that one. Spain needs to abolish the Animal Cruelty Act forever going forward and no sympathy for any bullfighter who gores the hell out of an innocent animal and then bleeds to death in front of a crowd of cheering humans who have no regard for these innocent lives. Another comment, I've never understood any killing of animals as a sport. I would hope that the death of this bullfighter will open people's eyes and maybe stop this practice of animal cruelty. And another similar comment, bullfighting should be banned. It's literally a blood sport, but it's not even a sport. It's a public slaughter of an innocent animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what do you think, Peter, of that term sport to describe this event? Absolutely inappropriate here. Clearly, it's not a sport. It is a barbaric activity. So I agree with your commenter. A couple more of the comments from people who believe bullfighting is archaic and cruel and the bullfighter got what he deserved. Sorry for your loss, but it can't be unexpected. Another one, barbaric and horrific. The idiot got what he deserved. Peter, you'll like this one. It's common sense. You try to kill a bull equals you may die. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, for me, that brings out the sort of two ways I have about thinking about the death of this bullfighter. Victor Barrio. Uh, One is that, you know, aside from the animal abuse involved in bullfighting and his devotion to this activity, he's engaged, as the commenter said, in a dangerous activity such as rock climbing or base jumping or motorcycle jumping or racing or any of those things. You want to engage in that. You're a thrill seeker. You can die. So part of it is like he's in a dangerous activity. You got to expect he's going to die once in a while. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. But secondly is, okay, he was engaged in this horrible activity. And so there's some kind of poetic justice and uh, joy that a lot of people have in him meeting this fate. And I have to say, I share a little bit of that. Well, Peter, your sentiments are shared by others. Another comment here is, didn't have to end that way, but he chose his sport and knew the risks. Exactly. 
except for the sport part. Now, on the other side of the argument, people who voted number one, bullfighting is a legitimate sport, and I feel bad that a person was killed. One individual states, this is what's wrong with the world today. You would choose that the human be killed. This is an acceptable sport, whether we choose to watch it or not. It's no different than this free-for-all fighting sport and many others. Oh, that's well, just ridiculous. That is just silly. So two humans who opt to go into the ring to fight the hell out of each other is similar to this situation of bullfighting? Clearly, the, the bulls have no option here. And the same individual comments... Who is standing up for our police forces who are systematically being killed or the victims who the bad cops are killing? The world has gone crazy. Human life trumps over animals. That's just the way it is. Okay. So it's like we're not allowed to care about the police forces who are systematically being killed at the same time caring for the animals? I know. Only one thing at a time, please. It does remind me of another issue that Lori and I have faced over the years, right, Lori, with this involves our interests in advocating for animals. And once in a while, we'll meet a person, including a beloved relative who just doesn't understand how we are devoting so much of our time and effort to animal welfare and animal rights when there are still human suffering, particularly, say, children dying of cancer. Yes, the exact comment, I believe, was, what a shame, Laura, you are spending so much time trying to help the animals when there's so many sick children dying of cancer in the world. Yeah. This gal writes, in part, bullfighting has been around forever. It's enjoyed by thousands, and I believe it should go on as is. And Peter, for the people who commented in support of bullfighting, often make that argument that this is part of culture or some tradition and therefore valuable and need of preservation. I know we hear that a lot. It's a cultural and therefore it needs to be preserved as if anything that's cultural is of value, which is uh, ridiculous. I mean, look at the culture in ISIS. Look what they do to human beings. They have a culture of burning people or drowning people alive. Do you want to preserve that? That cultural argument when you're talking about barbarism is not that compelling to anyone. And finally, Peter, why is it when one sticks up for the welfare of animals, a common question to the one advocating for the well-being of the animal is, well, do you eat meat? Implying that if you eat meat, you're not allowed to comment about some injustice done on an animal? I know we hear that all the time in all aspects of our animal work. And you see this all the time. It's almost like a a reflex, and it's pretty illogical. But I'll tell you, in your thread, there were a lot of vegans, uh, it turns out, which uh, easily uh, refutes comments like that. And there are a couple of yahoos out there. But still, I mean, you don't have to be a dyed-in-the-wool vegan to oppose the barbarism and the intense cruelty involved in bullfighting. Yes, and no doubt factory farming employs abusive practices. We know that. And indeed, you and I are vegan, and we abstain from consuming, purchasing, and wearing any animal products because of the inherent cruelty involved in the production of meat and dairy. I see where people who make this argument are trying to go here, Peter, that bullfighting is another means in which humans abuse, mistreat, and slaughter animals. But the one difference is... We're making a spectacle of this abuse. We're celebrating and getting entertained and making it a so-called sport 
of this activity to amuse an audience, right? And you know how I feel about this, Peter. I believe there's some psychopathology at play here. I mean, if you think this is fun, entertaining activity to watch humans torture and murder a non-human animal, then yes, in my opinion, there's something wrong here. And Peter, I just have to say one other thing. It also saddens me terribly that parents take their children to these kinds of events. I mean, we talked about this before. What kind of message does that teach our children? That it's okay to ignore any pain and suffering that we are inflicting upon the animals? The children learn that animals exist for our amusement. Laura, you know, there is one famous, uh, I wish there were more of them, but there is one famous former bullfighter named D. Alvaro Minera, who quit bullfighting, and he uh, has this quote, that bullfighting is a cruel tradition where the victim first off is innocent and where it is savagely tortured and massacred. As a tradition, it is ethically inconceivable. That's so good. Too bad we don't hear more of those. So to summarize, Peter, in this very contentious thread, most of the comments, perhaps 90%, thought, as I do, that bullfighting is archaic and cruel and also expressed no sympathy for the killed bullfighter. So in my view, Lori, the uh, question that arises is, does Spain or Mexico or any of the other countries change their uh, bullfighting culture following this death? I sort of doubt it. I doubt it, too. Okay, don't go away. More with Animals Today right after the break. Hi, it's Lori Kirshner from Animals Today, and here's your Animals Today Minute. Xylitol is a sweetener that is commonly used in sugar-free gum and candy, toothpaste, mouthwash, baked goods, and chewable vitamins. Xylitol is safe for humans, but can be extremely toxic to dogs. Luckily, cats do not seem to be interested in eating foods with xylitol. But in dogs, even small amounts of xylitol can cause hypoglycemia, that's low blood sugar, seizures, liver failure, and even death. The effects can appear as quickly as 10 minutes after ingestion. If your dog has eaten a xylitol-containing item, bring him or her to your veterinarian or emergency animal hospital immediately, even if there's no symptoms yet. He or she should be monitored there for 12 to 24 hours just to be safe. Also, please be aware that some nut butters now have xylitol as an added ingredient, so check your labels. And of course, don't let your dogs get at your chewing gum and mints. These are serious dangers causing the FDA to release a consumer alert on the risks to dogs, which you can read at fda.gov consumer. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner with your Animals Today Minute for the day. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused, because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. 
A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Hi, I'm Lisa Gibbons. I lost my mom to Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is a brutal reality for more than 5 million Americans. No one knows that better than their caregivers and families who suffer too. Research is needed to find treatments and cures faster. You can help fight Alzheimer's disease by visiting brainhealthregistry.org. Brain Health Registry collects vital research information online for free. So do your part. I'm doing mine. Help find Alzheimer's cures faster by visiting brainhealthregistry.org. Hello, I'm Jerry Mathers. I was the beaver in Leave it to Beaver. When I played the beaver on TV, I often got into trouble without even meaning to. Well, years later, after I left Hollywood, I got into real trouble. My blood sugar was through the roof. When I was diagnosed with type 2, I was shocked. Now, the very same natural remedies I use to control my type 2 diabetes are available for you in a super easy program called the Diabetes Solution Kit. If you have diabetes, I urge you to try this step-by-step plan. It has all the natural techniques I used, and it works a lot faster, too. And today, you can try this fast and easy solution without risk. I'm Jerry Mathers, and if I can do it, you can do it, too. If you'd like to normalize your blood sugar and stop taking your diabetes medication completely with your doctor's approval, go to jerrymathers33.com for your free video. That's jerrymathers33.com. Reverse your diabetes in as little as 30 days by going to jerrymathers33.com now. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Peter. Hey, Lori. How you doing? I'm great. Peter, the third week of July is Coral Reef Awareness Week, and I thought we'd talk about coral reefs and uh, see how much you know about coral reefs. I was not expecting this. I know. So, coral reefs, as you know, are rocky mounds formed in the sea by living things through the accumulation and deposition of calcium carbonate, also known as limestone. Hmm. Coral reefs serve as homes, which house many species of fishes, corals, and many other types of marine life. Peter, what are coral reefs mostly made up of? Polyps, algae, marine life, sand. 
polyps. That's correct. An individual coral is known as a polyp. It's a very small and very simple organism consisting mostly of, ready, Mm -hmm. guts, tentacles, and a mouth, toes, a mouth, and a chin, Mm -hmm. tentacles, a nose, and fingers. Whatever you said first. (laughs) That's correct. It's guts, tentacles, and a mouth. I didn't think there'd be a chin. (laughs) Thousands of identical polyps live together and form a colony, a coral colony, and each polyp excretes a calcium carbonate exoskeleton beneath it, and over long periods of time, the skeletons of many coral colonies add up to build the structure of a coral reef. How long is this reef building process, Peter? Like, are we talking in weeks, mm-hmm. months, or are we talking decades and centuries? Well, I'm going to say centuries. That's correct. Wow. What do coral use to kill their prey? Tentacles? Poison that they shoot out from their mouth or their teeth? Oh, I don't think it's the poison shooting. Uh, How about tentacles? It's the tentacles. So there's the the stomach topped by a tentacle-bearing mouth. The polyps extend their tentacles at night to sting and ingest tiny organisms called plankton and other small creatures. Reefs occur in shallow areas or in deep waters or both? Oh, I think shallow. Yeah, you're doing really good on this quiz, by the way. Coral animals that build tropical reefs require sunlight, so they are found in clear, shallow ocean waters. What does it mean when a coral reef is brightly colored? Is it overheated? Is it alive and healthy? Right. Or is it trying to attract more marine life? Well, it's alive and healthy, and maybe number three also. I don't know. I, I think alive and healthy is the answer. Coral reefs cannot live in temperatures less than how many degrees? Mm. 40 degrees Fahrenheit, 65 degrees Fahrenheit, 75 degrees Fahrenheit, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, how about 65 That's right. Okay, yeah. This is so interesting. What percentage of all marine fish species live at least part of their lives on coral reefs? Wow. Okay. I'll throw a number out there. I'm going to say uh, 20%. One third. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Which is at least 5,000 different species of wildlife. So we do need to protect those reefs. We sure do. The diversity of fish found on reefs is just huge. You ever been scuba diving? Never. I don't, I don't think I'd like you it. Know? How about yeah. snorkel? You okay with that? I'm okay with snorkel. Okay. Just going deep with oxygen in a tank scares me. Yeah. How about you? One time when I was a teenager. Did you like it? I liked it, but I don't think I knew enough to be uh, sufficiently uh, cautious. Would you do it again? No. Why? I'm a scaredy cat. Okay. We should go reef snorkeling. It looks beautiful. I would love to do that. Yeah. So we know how important coral reefs are to life in the ocean. And despite this, all of them in the world add up to less than 1% of the seafloor. Isn't that amazing? Mm. What's the largest reef in the world? Mm. Let me give you multiple choice. Okay. The Florida's Big Reef, the Sea Reef. The Fence Reef, the Great Barrier Reef. I'll say the Great Barrier Reef. That's right. That's the one I know about. That's the only one you've heard of. Now let's talk a little bit about the threats to reefs. You have warming waters, right? Right, Ocean acidification. Right. What else? The coral reefs are being degraded in other ways by humans like overfishing, right? Pollution from sewage and agriculture. Mm -hmm. And the fishing with the cyanide. I guess they dump cyanide in the water to stun the fish and make it easier for them to capture them. Is that correct? Right, right. 
and then sedimentation from poor land use practices. Mm -hmm. So reefs and their wildlife are also affected by the aquarium trade, right, Peter? Oh, yeah. Reefs and their wildlife are collected to serve as aquarium pets or decorative items. More than 1,800 species of reef fish, 140 species of corals, and 500 species of other invertebrates are used by the pet and home decor trades. Mm. So despite the importance of coral reefs there imperiled throughout the world. One recent report estimates that 75% of remaining coral reefs are currently threatened and may have already been lost. Okay, so as you mentioned before, the third week of July is Coral Reef Awareness Week. So uh, make sure to go online and teach yourself more about coral and coral reefs and look at some of those beautiful pictures and videos and then uh, consider going to visit one yourself like we're going to right Lori that's right and also uh, understand the importance of these reefs and don't support the industries that destroy them okay and I've got a couple of captive uh, primate stories for you okay yep so in uh, Tampa at Bush Gardens uh, the other day an orangutan escaped from her or his enclosure so you're at this zoo Bush Gardens and they discover this orangutan in the trees outside of the enclosure. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation uh, Commission said, quote, an orangutan escaped its enclosure. It was confined to the park the whole time. It has since been darted and returned to its cage. And then later, Bush Gardens re released a statement saying that it had moved guests safely out of the area park where the female orangutan was outside her habitat. The animal care team responded immediately, da 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 da, da and the safety of our guests, employees, and animals is our number one priority. And uh, there are uh, phone videos on YouTube, and you can see this this beautiful animals like swinging down and coming within like five or ten feet of the guests and like holy cow look at that it's a mystery i guess to the park officials how this uh, animal escaped her enclosure and it turns out that uh, just last month another orangutan got loose uh, from an enclosure same place so they've got a little problem there and this is just another death waiting to happen, isn't right. it? Right. It, it's cute until the animal hurts someone. Yeah. Or until they kill the animal. In Mexico City, to bring that point home, an endangered gorilla died at a zoo there. This silverback named Bantu, he was going to be transported to another zoo so he could mate. And he was tranquilized and then went into cardiac arrest right in front of a team of 20 vets who were powerless to do anything to resuscitate and save this gorilla. So sad. So they followed their protocols. They did everything they were supposed to do. They moved him so he can mate with two females in a distant zoo. And he had a sudden heart attack after the sedative. And there you go. This is going to happen. Probably happens more than is reported. And as we've mentioned in previous shows, it, if you're going to be in this business, it's unavoidable. Everyone ought to know what's going on. So sad. And Lori, moving animals around is just a fact of life when you are in the zoo business, and it's always very stressful. No matter what animal you're moving, it adds an extra element of stress and unpredictability on top of their regular, miserable lives. And then these animals are going to die during these transitions. It's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? 
And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference, and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. Actually, it's our 350th edition of Let's Be Fair. So after more than six years of looking at America's legal system, let's do something a little different. Let's look at the legal situation in another economic power, Japan. The Wall Street Journal reports that Japan is struggling with a very unusual problem. It says, and I quote, its people aren't litigious enough, end of quote. That's right. Some Japanese experts actually think they need more lawsuits. Why? Well, 15 years ago, officials there started using law schools in the United States as a model for educating their lawyers. They were able to recruit more students, but public attitudes on suing one another didn't change. Japanese people like resolving conflicts privately, so now they have a lot of lawyers with nothing to do. Let's be fair. Is that really a problem? Here in the U.S., it was once reported that we have 30 times more lawsuits per person than Japan. Now that's a litigation problem. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Thanks for calling Consolidated Credit Counseling Services. Can I help you? I sure hope so. I'm in debt. Is it credit card bills? Yes, I have two credit cards that I'm making minimum payments on and another that I'm behind on. I owe about $5,000. What interest rates are you paying? Between 18 and 22%. At that rate, it'll take over 20 years to pay off. Wow. 
20 years? What Consolidated Credit can do is work with your creditors to lower your payments and reduce or even eliminate your interest charges. You should be able to pay everything off in three or four years. What do I have to do? Just give me some details and get ready to celebrate your freedom from debt. We're Consolidated Credit. We're here to give you freedom from debt. Call now for your free consultation. If I had known it was this easy, I would have called years ago. Call 1-800-897-8374. 1-800-897-8374. That's 1-800-897-8374. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services Incorporated, 5701 West Sunlight Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Not a loan company, licensed by New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM19, Oregon DM80031. Do you hear that ringing? I've heard that ringing in my ears for over 20 years. My doctor said... The ringing and buzzing in your ears is called tinnitus, and you're just going to have to learn to live with it. The constant ringing in my ears is annoying. I've tried everything, and nothing worked. So I invested my own money, met with doctors, specialists, and certified labs. After a decade of research, we've developed Tinoxyl, a prescription-free, 100% natural and effective way to stop the ringing. And better yet, it helps me sleep. Trying to sleep with ringing in my ears is almost impossible. But with Tinoxyl, I started sleeping better in the first couple weeks. I'm so confident that Tinoxyl will help you too that I'm giving the first 100 callers a free 30-day supply. Don't let the ringing in your ears control your life. Call now and get your free 30-day supply. Just pay shipping. Take back control of your life, combat the ringing, and start sleeping again. Try it for free. Call 800-930-1669. That's 800-930-1669. 800 930 Lori and I have been enjoying Jonathan Balcom's new book, What a Fish Knows, which, as it calls for a greater moral standing for fishes, provides a just delightful portrait of their psychology, intelligence, perception, and much more. Jonathan is director of animal sentience at the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy, and I'm pleased to welcome him now. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Peter. We're glad uh, that you're here, and we really have been enjoying this book. And interestingly, I thought the subtitle is The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Why did you choose the word cousins? Usually you hear that in the context of primates. Well, one reason I chose cousins is because I didn't want to say the word fishes again in the subtitle. Um, Once was enough. Uh, so, um, or fish for that matter. Um, but it is meant to be provocative and because they are related to us. We are related to them. Uh, there's, that, there's that popular book, um, Our Inner Fish, which talks about the, the, the links biologically between us and uh, the fishes who are our ancestors a long way back. And so um, they are our cousins. And part of the message of the book is to get us, their cousins, to be um, more aware of their rich lives. And why, uh, then, did you write this book? Uh, Two main reasons. Uh, I'm a scientist, so I read uh, a lot of scholarly papers in scientific journals, and uh, the science fishes slides is really remarkable, Um, but most of it's buried away in, in scientific journals that the public generally never sees. And so I wanted to bring that information to light to make it accessible to lay leaders and non-scientists. The other reason I wrote the book is because fishes need our help. They're the most exploited group of vertebrates. We kill either hundreds of billions or, depending on who's estimating, trillions of them every year. If we line them up end-to-end, they would reach the sun and back. Mm. And uh, it's easy to forget their individuals and their sentience. They have the capacity to feel. They can feel pain. They can feel pleasure. 
they have emotions, they have cognition, they have all the elements that, in my view, endows being an animal to be worthy of our respect and consideration. And so I wanted to write this book to hopefully elevate their status. And I'm pleased you did. It does have a, a tremendous amount of fascinating, not only uh, facts that you uh, delineate, uh, but really it's very persuasive as you layer them one upon the other as to why we ought to think about them differently. You're an ethologist, aren't you? That's right. It's a biologist who specializes in the study of animal behavior. You know, Lori and I are both ophthalmologists for humans. Uh, my background is not in zoology, and I was very interested to read about some of the visual abilities of some of the fishes. Uh, which do you find most uh, remarkable? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I, I, I love the, the fact that, uh, that a flounder's eyes migrate from one side of the body, or one eye migrates from one side of the body to the other early in life. Uh, that's maybe not so much an ophthalmology phenomenon, but uh, it's certainly related to the eyes. Yeah. Um, fish has probably invented color vision. You know, all those the color, yeah, all those beautiful colors we see on reefs. Um, they probably have a a very high appreciation for those colors, and they have more structures in their eyes for processing uh, color. So they may be seeing those colors more brightly than us. One of the coolest visual, it's really a visual communication thing, is found in uh, Ambon Banzo fishes, which look kind of yellow to our eyes and under regular light. But under ultra, ultraviolet light, there's hidden patterns on their faces, and they, they can see in that spectrum, and most other fishes cannot. And so they are able to communicate or recognize each other sort of covertly under the radar of uh, prying eyes that would otherwise might be able to pick them out. Um, and so it's a nice little uh, visual adaptation they have. Is the debate about uh, whether fish feel pain settled? And, and how does that relate to consciousness and awareness? I like to think it's settled. I mean, the evidence I've seen that I present in my book is overarchingly in support of what we should really expect all along. These are vertebrate animals with complex nervous systems, different types of uh, nociceptors. These are sensory receptors for, for noxious stimuli, painful stimuli. And experiments and anatomical studies and behavioral studies show quite clearly that these animals are sensing and responding to pain, and they also will take action to relieve pain when they're given the opportunity. So there may be a handful of scientists who will continue to argue that they don't feel pain. There'll always be skeptics. There are people who, to this day, believe the Earth is flat. Um, I don't think that validates uh, the question that they may not feel pain. The jury is no longer out, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Fishes feel pain. Do some fishes like to play for its own sake? I'm glad you mentioned that because really there's, there's a whole flip side to pain, of course. It, I believe if, you, if you're, and I've written two books on animal pleasure, so I feel somewhat qualified to yes. talk about that. Um, if, you, if you're equipped to experience pain in negative states, then you're, you've got the equipment to experience positive states and pleasures as well. And uh, there's not, not really any doubt in my mind either that fishes can experience pleasure. Uh, one example would be a study in which uh, fishes were given the opportunity to relieve stress by being stroked, by sidling up next to a moving wand that could give them gentle caresses. And just as they will do on reefs where they visit cleaning stations where cleaner fishes will give them caresses, um, these fishes sidled up to these moving wands and received strokes, and it, it, it uh, markedly reduced their stress levels. So it's sort of like therapy. 
um, and the way fishes will swim up to divers, trusted divers, to receive strokes. Uh, no food involved uh, indicates that they, they like the feeling, the pleasure of touch. So touch is certainly one way in which fishes can experience pleasure. They, there is evidence now that they play as well. And uh, that's probably, that may be in some cases a relief of boredom in captivity, but it also probably is stimulating and pleasurable for them. There are anecdotes, in addition to the science, I include a lot of stories in the book because people love stories. And there are anecdotes of fishes doing circuits around the uh, aquaria, uh, swimming into the pump and getting pushed across the top and then swimming back around to the pump again and uh, taking uh, repeated rides, just sort of like we would do at a fairground. Jonathan, we humans really have not treated our cousins nicely at all, have we? No, uh, we kill, as I mentioned, huge numbers, hundreds of billions or trillions every year, and uh, we don't kill them in very nice ways. Uh, commercial fishing, the most common ways of dying are uh, suffocation in air, crushing, uh, decompression when being brought up from the depth, yeah. when bladders expand and crush neighboring organs or push things out of their mouth, uh, or bleeding on the, on the deck of the boat. Uh, none of those are, are ones I would volunteer to methods of the test that I would volunteer for. And um, it's almost all of it is to support human eating habits. Uh, ultimately, the best thing we can do to help fishes is to stop eating them because we're really wrecking the oceans and wrecking the planets with commercial fishing. Uh, in particular, the way we uh, rapaciously take life from the ocean. There was a study published earlier this year or last year that estimated that we've lost about half of all of marine life in the last 50 years. Yeah. We just can't keep doing it that way. And that's another part of the book is to try to hopefully encourage people to change their relationship to these uh, these creatures. We've been preaching the same for a while, and this is a great tool to help uh, bring that along. Uh, why are we able to continue these these behaviors? Is it simply that they're invisible to uh, us? I think that's part of the answer. There's the, the tragedy of the commons where it's a, a quote-unquote resource. I don't like uh, defining any kind of living creature with intrinsic value as a resource. It's very anthropocentric, but nevertheless, we often use them that way. Um, but uh, these are, I think it's really important to note that we're soiling our own bed. We're damaging ourselves when we harm nature. Um, when we when we deplete populations like that, when we pollute habitats, consider that more than half of all the oxygen that we breathe on this earth is produced by the ocean, by leaking algae. And uh, so where the oceans go, so go we. We are dependent on a healthy planet. And we can't just keep running roughshod over it the way we have. We're speaking with Jonathan Balcombe. The book is What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. And Jonathan, let's conclude with one of my little pet peeves, and those are the ad campaigns that promote fishing as a family bonding activity. You want to comment on that? Yeah, recreational fishing. I do write a little bit about that in the last chapter, and um, it's a very widespread uh, pastime. I did a little bit when I was young. Uh, soon quit, though, when I had to take hooks out of fish's mouth. But consider, you know, I mean, you see it gratuitously in advertising and uh, logos. And, uh, you know, if, it, I don't think you'd see advertisements for, for a beer commercial or some, some hotel or retirement resort if somebody was uh, shooting an arrow into, a, into a, say, a deer's head, yeah. reeling it in on a rope, which is essentially what we're doing when we hook a fish by the mouth. Um, and then, and then the animal is, is suffocated at the end of the line if they if they're not released back. And even when they're released, they're often uh, damaged and harmed in the process. So 
it's a pretty brutal sport, and uh, it just says speaks volumes about our troubled uh, relationship and the need for our relationship to these creatures to evolve. That we still think of it as a benign thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. It's not benign from the fish's perspective. Jonathan Balcom, What a Fish Knows is the name of the book. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. And major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal, Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true. People who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. This is Rick Osick, president of Famous Footwear. Our company is working together with the March of Dimes through March for Babies to raise money and awareness about the serious problem of premature birth in the U.S. As a business leader, I know that babies born very sick or too soon cost businesses billions of dollars each year, in addition to the emotional stress on employees and their families. That's why Famous Footwear is committed to raising funds to improve the health of moms and babies everywhere. Won't you please join us in the March for Babies? Start a team today at marchforbabies.org. This report is brought to you by Mayflower. Millennials are being lured by major cities, but what will attract them to your city? The 2016 Mayflower Mover Insights study discovered where and why millennials are moving. With one in five millennials moving in the past year, these insights may be the difference between your city seeing the headlights or taillights of a Mayflower moving truck. Of millennials who have moved, nearly half identified love as a reason for moving. Millennials identified experiences as important for relocating, with food and restaurants as a top priority. Millennials continue to be enamored by urban centers, with nearly 6 in 10 wanting to live in or near a big city. Melissa Sullivan, Director of Marketing, Mayflower. 
Our Mayflower agents across the country are moving millennials as they begin new chapters of their lives, and many agents report new careers, relationships, and experiences as drivers of this generation's moves. Findings from our study help us analyze where our customers move and why they are moving. For moving tips, visit Mayflower.com. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Hello, I'm Linda Gray and I lost my mother and a dear friend to Alzheimer's disease. Nearly two-thirds of the five and a half million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's are women. Join the fight to help find treatments and cures for Alzheimer's faster by registering at brainhealthregistry.org. We collect vital research information online for free. Please do your part. I'm doing mine. brainhealthregistry.org. to the show, almost every community has an animal shelter or two nearby. And chances are you've visited a shelter to adopt one or more dogs or cats. But have you ever wondered about the early animal shelters? Like, what was the first animal shelter in the U.S. and what did it do? I want to welcome back to the program Kate Kelly, author, historian, and media personality. She runs a couple of websites, including America Comes Alive. Hey, Kate. Thank you very much, Lori. I'm delighted to be here. Kate, reading your piece about the first animal shelter in the United States, I think I have a new heroine in the world of animal welfare, Carolyn Earl White. Who was Carolyn Earl White, and what was her interest in animal welfare? You know, she was a very fortunate woman of the 19th century, because usually young women didn't exactly get to follow their knows with what interested them. But Carolyn was born to a well-to-do Quaker family in Philadelphia. And as, as you may or may not know, Quakers were very politically active for the most part, and they were also just more open to the idea of, of education for girls and that sort of thing. So, so Carolyn was unusual for her time, but not for her, her religion and, and that sort of thing. And one of the things that we don't think about, but but she would have been a little girl in about the 18, you know, early 1840s. She was born in 1833. And one of the things that bothered her enormously was walking down the street and seeing the wagons and the wagon owners beating or in in some way really mistreating their horses or mules. These were beasts of burden, 
the men needed them to do their work in order to make their deliveries through town and that sort of thing. And if they felt that the animal wasn't performing up to what they needed, they would beat them, they would do any kind of thing they could do, yelling, throwing them things at them and that sort of thing. And it really bothered Caroline to the point that she would be just horrified and would then try to avoid those streets because she remembered a particular scene with, uh, you know, some sort of animal abuse happening. Yeah. So what was amazing was that she was able to live a life that could go on and, and figure out a solution to that sort of problem. So what did she do? Well, she had, by this time, she had gone on, she had married, and the fellow she married was out of her religion. He was Catholic. He was an attorney, but he was also very open-minded, and he supported her in her serious belief in animal rights. And so he became aware that uh, Henry Berg in New York City was forming the, the American Society to for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And so he suggested to his wife that she should go up and meet with Henry Berg. So she did. And so she came back to Philadelphia and began to set up the Pennsylvania Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Mm. She was soon joined by another fellow who was very interested in the cause, and his name was Colonel Richard Muckle. And they worked together to, to work on this organization. When the uh, agreement, you know, the legal agreement had to be drawn up for the society, uh, Carolyn invo- invited her husband to do the legal work. And when they specified the board of directors, her husband was on the board of directors, and so was Colonel Muckle, but she was not. Now, nothing is written about whether that upset her, but it was certainly a- a- an item of the day that Women could participate and be active, but they couldn't do something like be in a board position. So whether she was offended by that or not, we will never know. But today we certainly would be. That's so interesting. So she's not even allowed to serve on the board of the organization that she started, being that she's a woman. And yet it grew very fast, didn't it? Yes, it did. That organization started growing, and she decided to fill another need, which was that in 1869, she started the Women's PSPCA. It later became known as the Women's Humane Society, and that was actually the organization that that offered the animal refuge, which is what she called it. She was particularly interested in small animals, um, first dogs, stray dogs. And, you know, in that day, again, we have to think about what it was like at the time. There were there was no rabies um, vaccine, vaccine, so animals were very likely to have rabies, and so they were a danger to each other and also to humans if, if there were too many or if they bit someone. And they also just had pretty much free reign of, of any community. There was no leash law. They would have been guard dogs, so they would have been important to families, but there would not have been a lot of control of them. And also there would have been no spaying. So there were lots and lots of puppies. So she started this women's refuge and set it up in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. And offered a place to to bring stray animals and and was very successful in her effort at at taking care of that matter. And people did bring animals and they were able to run the dog catcher version of their organization where they would would pick up stray animals. And and so she really did fill a need uh, in that way. They went on from that standpoint to fill another need, and that was that she got a phone call running this organization. And the doctor said, you know, 
we're doing a lot of medical testing here, and if you would donate some of your extra dogs to us, we would really appreciate it. And with that, <laughs> Carolyn had another cause, which was forming the Anti-Vivisection Society. So she formed the, this was a very active organization in London before it was in America, but she was the one that first formed that organization that really is, is one that still exists today to observe and prevent animals from being test subjects on, on different things from makeup and, and medicines and that sort of thing. So, so she started that as well. And you just look at her life and you think, wow, she did so much. And just by rolling from one experience to another and seeing a need, she had all of these things that she was able to, to formulate and things that are still with us today. So Carolyn Earl White founded the first animal shelter. She championed other causes, like you mentioned, medical testing on animals. And she also was involved in the fight against the abuse of alcohol. Is that correct? Yes. She felt as though a lot of animal abuse um, was because men were drinking too much. And so she started establishing water fountains, figuring if you could give free options for people to drink something else, maybe they wouldn't imbibe as much as they did. The, the water fountains were multipurpose in the sense that there would also be a trough for you know, animal, I mean, for horses or mules or dogs. So that was also a good thing. Whether or not she accomplished the drop in animal abuse by trying to prevent men from drinking as much is certainly nothing that has been proven or or written about, but it was an interesting theory. And of course, you know, lots of people went on to be active with the prohibition movement. So she certainly was not alone in her thinking. But this was also an era when, well, I guess we still have cockfights and, and they had something called dog baiting where an animal would be tied up so that other animals could attack them. And, and she just felt as though all those forms of entertainment were particularly enjoyed by men who have drinking too much. Kate Kelly, I'm really glad you brought this to our attention. Carolyn Earl White is an amazing woman and more people should know about her work as a pioneer in animal welfare. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I was delighted to be with you. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.